Welcome to Business Masters, the podcast that gives you direct access to world-leading experts on key business issues. To be the first to know about future shows and to access even more exclusive content, visit businessblueprint.com and subscribe today. Hello, it's Dale Beaumont here, founder of Business Blueprint, and welcome to another Business Masters podcast. Today, I'm talking with Dan Gregory, who's one of Australia's most accomplished branding experts. He's also a regular guest on the popular TV show, The Gruen Transfer, and more recently has become a published author. And our topic is Secrets of Successful Branding. Dan, thanks very much for being on our show. Thanks, Dale. Great to be here. Let's start with branding in general. What is it? What does it mean to you? Uh, well, I think you know what, what a brand fundamentally is, is a promise. It's a promise that you make um, to your customers and that creates an expectation. I think a lot of the time we think of, um, of brand as being a logo or being, adver- being you know, an ad or, or advertising. And I think it's so much more than that. There's, there's a lot that comprises um, uh, what makes up a brand? It's it's about the price. It's about the name. It's about why it exists, and it's 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 more about the service that it actually creates, um, and the um, I guess the intangible value that's that's created beyond just the functionality of what you're delivering to your customers. Because I know yeah, people do associate it with with colors, fonts, logos, kind of imagery. Um, but let's you sort of started to go into some of the, you know deeper topics as well. Can you ex- explore you know that maybe the the things that aren't quite as obvious and describe what they are? Well, I think it's really easy to be distracted by you know the the the, the colors and the livery and and certainly advertising because that's that's the very visual part of of what we see of a brand. But I think that you know what what really. Uh, creates a brand sits beneath that. It's the the uniqueness that that you bring to the party. I mean, uh, I know you've seen me speak before, Dale. And one of the things I talk about is the fact that um, identity is what drives all human behaviour. You know, people um, are you know far more than logical. They're far more than emotional. They're actually driven by who they think they are. And we buy very much in that way. We buy in alignment with our identity. We buy into into brands that that confer. Um, who we think we are more than more than we buy things simply about benefits and uh, and features, and I think that what what a brand is 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 really built out of is the industry identity, which is what's the um, I guess what's the emotional exchange is what we call it that's going on. You know, what's the second currency that people are trading in? What's their customer identity is kind of the second thing. And then we look at their offering identity, which is what do they specifically bring to the party within the industry that, that serves their customers in a really unique way. And then what we try to focus on is how we make that identity impactful. So that's, that, that's kind of the, the, the four processes of identity that we typically go through when we're, um, when we're trying to establish a brand for people. And that, you know, as you can hear, there's a lot more in that and it comes right down to the, to the product offering and, and very much the, the, the essence of the business that they're in. And with, with a brand, how much, is it, how much is developed organically and how much is kind of like you know, created in a science lab where, where it's kind of manufactured? Uh, and do you believe that, you know, you should be more of one and, and not the other or, you know, you have a combination of both? Uh, well, A, that's a great question. Um, B, I th- look, I think it, it's always going to be a mix of both. Um, I think in an ideal world, and certainly I'm a bit of an over-planner, you, you'd want to have your strategy pretty well set out before you did anything. But um, I don't think you ever get your strategy 100% right and you need to get it into the marketplace and, um, and have it be evaluated in the marketplace and modify based on that kind of feedback. 
Having said that, I think that, you know, particularly for, um, for SMEs, you know, smaller to medium-sized businesses, um, what's really important, I find, is to anchor it in what's unique about the founder. I think that uh, the more you can invest yourself into, into your business so that you're not creating something that's, um, that's generic, so that you're not creating something that, that looks like every other business in the category. I think that's, that's the, the, um, the critical thing to try to establish. And I think the best way to do that is to, uh, is to invest yourself in it. You know, as the old saying goes, um, uh, you know, when you're true to yourself, there's no competition. Love that. Um, now, uh, before we kind of go any further, I have got more questions, of course, but um, I'd like to get practical and I'd like you to share some of the different brands that you've worked on and the success that uh, those brands have achieved. And maybe, you know, were they always destined for greatness or how did you kind of craft them to be able to, to have that success? Sure. Gosh, that's a, that's a long question. Um, I've been doing this for uh, almost uh, 25 years now. Um, so I've worked, I, and I've always worked in um, in entrepreneurial startups as agencies rather than the big corporates. And one of the great things about you know being on the entrepreneurial side of um, of advertising is uh, the big corporate. You know, when you work in the big corporates, you tend to work on one brand or a couple of brands and uh, sort of own that for a couple of years. Well, I've always been uh, quite lucky, and you know, I've always worked in uh, entrepreneurial startup agencies. And one of the differences between a smaller um, boutique agency and and the bigger corporate agencies is in a corporate agency, you'll typically work on one or two clients, you know, one of those big clients like a Telstra or a Qantas or something like that. But in a smaller entrepreneurial agency, you're likely to work on a lot of different brands in a day. And what that's meant is it's, it gave me a, uh, a huge wealth of experience on, on lots of different brands. So that's been really lucky. So I've worked for Coca-Cola for um, a long period of time and worked on a lot of different brands there. You know, Coke's kind of the biggest brand in the world. So that was, you know, a huge experience and a huge learning curve. And we worked on the, uh, the launch of Coca-Cola Zero in Australia, which was um, incredibly successful uh, and really came... Um, off the back of a uh, a uh, faltering launch in the US, um, I worked launching uh, Aussie Home Loans in Australia. I've worked with people like the National Rugby League. I've worked for Unilever over a uh, lot of a uh, lot of years, and I've worked for play, um, media companies like News Limited, like um, Fairfax, and uh, you know different different kinds of financial companies. So it's been a, a really mixed bag of brands that I've worked on. And I think what really makes what makes for a successful brand is really how invested uh, the marketer is, and it's it's not always true, but it's often true that the the more you work with the CEO of a company or the more you work with the founder of a company, the better the quality of the work is because they've got a different a different process for evaluating work. For instance, you know if you're a a marketer, your primary job, I guess, is in protecting your job. Whereas if you're the founder of a company, you're not really worried about doing things uh, the way they should be done. You're not really worried about you know, how things have been done in the past. All you're interested in is how you can have the biggest impact in the marketplace. And I think that uh, it's you know, certainly between an advertising agency and, and a marketer, the, the better work comes out of um, uh, developing a relationship of trust. And a lot of people talk about trust, but I think that that's actually something that, you know, you either build that up over time or you build that up by getting runs on the board. And I think that that's, you know, a critical part of success. And if you're in, 
your own business, in some ways you're actually more, more liberated in that, you know, the risk is all your own. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are always going to be bolder in the work that they put out there, but it does mean that they can be if they need to be. We often, there's lots of different examples we could talk about of, of, of brands. Oftentimes people talk about things like Coca-Cola and, and uh, Apple. Um, let's talk about Apple, for example, because um, it's such a well-known example. What do you think they do well in relation to, to their brand and how have they become so successful? Well, look, I think, you know, the seeds of Apple's success were really sown in, the, um, uh, in its initial marketing. I mean, if you think back to... You know, the 1976, you know, when Apple was really kicking on and, um, and then the launch of the, the Apple Macintosh. Now, Macintosh was launched, um, uh, I don't know if you remember the ad, Dale, but it was, it was a print ad that said, a computer for the rest of us is what Macintosh was launched as. And that was all about, if you think about what, what computers were like back in the early 1980s, it was very much about you know, working with the DOS prompt, you had to, you had to have some level of, of technicality, of some level of expertise with computers in order to operate a computer. It was quite a, um, a closed world. And what Mac did is it, cr- it had this visual operating system that, that adapted from Xerox at the Palo Alto Research Center. And what that visual operating system did was it made it easier to use a computer. You know, you could just drop and drag things, you could open things up by double-clicking on an icon, as opposed to knowing what the code was that you had to enter to, to open things up. So in that way, they very much were, you know, a computer for the rest of us. And I actually think that ethos has driven everything that they've brought to life in their brand. If you think about the design ethos that, that you know, particularly in the, it, it, during the times that Steve Jobs was CEO, the design ethos that really drove Apple all the way through was how can we make it more humanly intuitive? And you look at stuff like, you know, the iPod, which basically had a wheel and one button. Then you, you move to the iPad and the iPhone, which have, um, you know, uh, screens that you can operate with your finger. And, and, you know, they're down to one button now. And I think that that's what, what built Apple's brand was was that ethos that, that sat at the beginning of the brand was the, uh, you know, making, um, a, you know, technology or computing technology available for the rest of us. And everything they did was filtered through that. How, they, how, could, how could they make um, technology adapt to us as opposed to having us adapt to technology? And I think that that's really driven the success of their brand. And when you have a look at some of the, you know, the more recent advertising, obviously, you know, they built depth into that. You know, they, you know the, the campaign where they said, uh, um, I'm a Mac, was really about um, contrasting themselves with the way the rest of the tech world was at that particular time. And it's only in recent, in recent years where you have players like Samsung coming into the, coming into the game that are starting to, to challenge them in terms of how intuitive their interface is. So I think that's really what's driven the success of their brand. As a, you know, and then the, you know, the really clever advertising is a subset of that. Okay, well, we're going to come back down to earth now. And if we're just a startup business, uh, you know, we're kind of getting, getting going. A question I've got for you is, when should you start thinking about, you know, crafting your brand from day one or only after you've got a proven business model and you've actually, the concept actually works? When should you bother? Well, I, good question. And again, you know, you'll evolve as it goes into the marketplace. But I think it's something you should really be thinking about from day one. And, 
the reason I say that is the only time I would say you don't need, really need to worry about it is if you're in a monopoly. So if you're, if you're the originator in a category and you're building that, you know, your brand will necessarily build itself because you're the only offering in the marketplace. But if you're in a competitive marketplace, the, you know, the only thing that really differentiates you is your brand. Um, I was recently working with um, a group of hairdressers and, you know, we were talking about, you know, how they could market more effectively. And, the, you know, they're, they're often in, um, you know, really competitive marketplaces. You know, you walk into any shopping mall, there might be a half a dozen different hairdressers in that mall. So they really need something to, to pull, them, pull themselves apart. And that's when you start drilling down into the brand. And again, that's when thinking beyond just the advertising or beyond the logo becomes really important. You know, the conversation that I had with them was, what's the biggest barrier to, to trial? What's the biggest barrier a hairdresser has um, in, in a new customer um, trying them out for the first time? And we kind of dug into that. And the thing that we realized was uh, when a woman goes to a new hairdresser, she feels like she's cheating on her current hairdresser. You know, women are just as eager to cheat. They just need a better excuse. And so what we did with them was, okay, well, how do we make going to or experiencing a new hairdresser not cheating? Uh, and what we talked about was how do we develop new, new products? So say it might be a, um, a, a best friend's big night out where you have a product where you sell um, to, to get, you know, three or four women ready for a big night out. Now, that might not be a haircut. That might just be a wash and a blow dry and all those things that gets them ready for the big night out. But if their current hairdresser doesn't offer that product, that gives them permission to try that without it feeling like it's cheating because it's, it's an only, only in that environment experience. So what we typically try to do when we're working with smaller, smaller businesses is sit down and say, what is my, no, what is your, sorry, what is your nowhere else experience? What is it that you deliver that I can't get anywhere else? And that's where you really start to develop what a brand is about, is, is those things that you do that are unique. And it may not even be a strength. It may even be a weakness. It, but it's, it's about creating that sense of uniqueness in your offering. And I think that that's critically important right from day one, particularly when we're playing in markets that are incredibly competitive, where we've got a lot of different players entering the marketplace. And to be honest, consumers have more options than they've ever had before at any point in history. So the more distinctive you're offering and the more you offer something that I can't get somewhere else, that's, that's really where the, you know, your business finds some strength. Mm. And just as a kind of a range, how much should someone look at spending on their kind of brand in the, in the early days? Um, you know, it's reported that ANZ spent, I don't know, $6 million on their logo. I don't know what it was, but it was a ridiculous amount of money. You know, and then there are other places that you can get logos done for $95. So, you know, when is enough enough? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. And a lot of, a lot of the bigger corporations, you know, particularly with a, an existing brand like ANZ, um, and I didn't know exactly what the, what the exact figure was, but what they'll do is they'll probably go out to pitch. They'll have a number of different design companies providing suggestions. They'll then go into, you know, some kind of research um, that might be quantitative research. It might be qualitative research looking at, you know, what that brand um, identity connotes in the marketplace, what possible negatives there are. So that's where, you know, logo price tends to go up. I mean, if it's just, if you're, if you're contacting a, you know, a designer working out of, um, 
out of India or, or China, you, you can probably get a $95 logo, um, which is really just a piece of art. I think, but in terms of you know what people should should look at spending, it's it's such a um, a, a piece of string question, um, because you know sometimes you don't need to spend anything. It's really about sitting down and deciding what your marketing objectives are. I think that where people get caught up is that they kind of look for formulas, and formulas typically lead to formulaic results. I think. Better than that is to sit back, decide what your strategy is, look at what you're trying to achieve, and then figure out what kind of budget is appropriate to making that happen. So an example of that is a, a friend of mine, uh, Leah Squire, runs a, uh, a travel business called byokids.com.au. And basically, it's, it's a travel business that's set up targeting people with kids. So people with kids looking for places to go on holidays that are kid-friendly. Um, and what she's done over the years is she's built an incredibly powerful um, social network through her blog and through her Facebook page. And now that's that's principally where her marketing goes. You know, she advertises deals that um, that she's got going on her Facebook page, and that community snaps it up really quickly. So you know that cost her time, but it didn't really cost her a lot of money. And you know another example is I was um, you know helping out a friend of mine who's who's an author and he was looking at ways to get his raise his profile in the media. How could he get appearances on news programs to promote his book? And I said to him, look, you, you know news programs aren't interested in your book; they're interested in news. So I, you know what I suggested was the more he anchored his press releases to do with um, things that were already happening in the news. The, um, so he could provide a perspective on what was already news using his book as a way of providing that perspective as opposed to just trying to talk about his book, the more effective he could be. So I, I, I don't think it's about budget. I think it's about deciding what your objectives are, being incredibly clear on what you want to achieve, being really clear about the, the target market you want to reach. And that's one thing that I think small businesses can do better than big businesses is they can be more targeted, they can be more precise and they can um, serve a small niche of customers better than the big guys can. And that's, that's kind of where I'd start. And then you look for, well, where is that, is that audience congregating? What kind of media are they consuming? And what's the best way of reaching them in, in an effective way? And I think that's a different conversation than, well, I need to spend you know, X percent of my annual turnover on marketing because it, it actually has you focus what you're doing as opposed to just putting, you know, marketing into the, in, into the marketplace without thinking about what, what, what the real goal of it is. Okay. Um, let, let's talk about um, having observed lots of different companies. Uh, could you list maybe two or three of the biggest mistakes that you see people making when it comes to their brand? Yeah, definitely. Look, I think probably the biggest mistake that even big brands make is being generic. Uh, one of the one of the things you see everywhere is is brands within a category tend to look like all of the other brands within a category. So if you think about it, all ads for accountants look like ads for accountants. All logos for um, for building companies tend to look like logos for building companies. And it's an understandable mistake. But, you know, people start up a business and they think, well, I'm in the business of finance or I'm in the business of, of um, personal training. And the first thing they do is look at what, they, what their competitive set does. 
to get a benchmark of what that you know what a brand in that industry is supposed to look like and in in many ways what they do is they not they don't copy but they certainly um borrow from from the genre and i think that's a big mistake because really what you're looking to do is to stand out and create something distinctive in your marketing so i'd say that's the first mistake is is looking generic looking like everyone else in the category the second mistake i think people make is that they spend a lot of time talking to themselves um i think they look for marketing and and promotional materials that that sort of light them up without thinking um in a customer centric way without thinking well what's actually most important to the people that I'm trying to engage with you know what would make them interested and very few of us you know exactly right in the target market of of the people our business speaks to so i think that that's critical you know developing an empathy for for what's important to your customers what's what are their values what are their biggest issues and how can i address those as opposed to thinking about what what you're trying to project uh, I think the third biggest mistake people make is by being boring. They become incredibly conservative. There's a great quote from the uh, the CEO of, of Diesel Jeans who said, uh, we're in more danger of boring our customers than of shocking them. And I think that that's very true. And I think we get very conservative when we try to, you know, create content in, you know, different media formats to attract people's attention because that's 90% of what we do is just getting people to pay attention. And if you think about TV shows like, um, you know, The Family Guy and, uh, you know, some of the stuff we watch on TV, the marketplace isn't that conservative. I mean, a, a, lot, of, a lot of the time I hear about brands targeting mums um, and saying, oh, mums are really conservative. And I think, you know, that comes back into talking to yourselves. You know, people tend to think, well, what was my mum like? But if you think about it, most most mums today, you know, if you're a mum today, your average age means that you're probably in high school about five years after I was. So, you know, it's not Mrs. Cleaver buying the mum product anymore. It's, it's you know, girls who were conceived in the 1980s is the average age of a mum today. So that's kind of, um, uh, you know, puts a different perspective on, on who you're talking to. And I think that the last mistake that people um, make, or not the last, but the last I'll talk about, um, is, is in a failure of, of looking to provide value. I think that uh, a lot of marketing is really selfish in terms of its exchange. They're really talking to the customers uh, um, from a point of view of, I need you to buy my product. I want you to do something for me. As opposed to processing um, from a point of view of, how can I add value? What can I give to my customers that they'll be interested in? What can, how can I make their lives better? You know, I think we have a very, um, a very ROI-focused way of looking at the world. And I think instead, we should be thinking about how can I contribute to the group of people I'm trying to engage with because that's really what generates a reward. And what has, it's like any relationship. You know, you can't, it can't be all one-way traffic. Absolutely. Well, you can reverse all those tips that you've just shared and um, you can see them as, uh, as, as positives as well as uh, potential negatives. So um, thanks for sharing those. Uh, we're going to wrap up now, but any final kind of tips or kind of words of advice to inspire you know, other entrepreneurs listening to this? Yeah, definitely. I, I really suggest sitting down and thinking about what it is that you actually do. Determine what the emotional exchange is that you're involved in. You know, most people don't really know what they're selling. They don't really know what business they're in. 
And I'd start with really digging into who your customer really is. What do they really value? Why are they buying your product? And it's not always for the reasons that you think. You know, uh, to go back to the hairdressing example, you know, women don't necessarily go to the hairdresser to get shorter hair. You know, they could get that quite cheaply. They're actually going there for an emotional exchange, for a relationship, for the for the way it makes them feel. They want to walk out of out of out of a salon feeling like a million bucks. They want to feel, you know, sexier, more beautiful, more confident than they did before they went in. And that's that's where you, you know the more you can anchor in that emotional exchange, the more you understand what's really going on for your customers, the more effective you can be in your marketing because you actually know what you're really selling. So I think that's that's the critical thing to learn for for a business of any scale. Fantastic. We're going to wrap it up there, Dan. Thanks very much for your time. Dale, always a pleasure. For thanks, more man. information about Dan Gregory, please visit theimpossibleinstitute.com. Thanks for listening to another Business Masters podcast. To access more great content or to download your free business plan template, visit businessblueprint.com.